Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. the Lord everybody praise the Lord everybody hallelujah hallelujah you may be seated in the presence of the Lord amen what a great auspicious gathering what a great time of fellowship a great time of worship and uh, we appreciate the Lord's presence uh, the great things that he's doing uh, here in Philadelphia amen I am It's been many years since I've been here in this city. Uh, Years ago, uh, when I um, pastored in Brooklyn, I used to preach in the Kensington area quite often, and uh, it's been a long time. I even have family in Germantown, and uh, they're a little older, so um, I I would have had to tell them about this two months ago in order to get them to be here today. And since I was outside of that window, they would have been like, well, you know, uh, we would have invited you over for dinner, but, you know, so I, uh, I really appreciate what's going on here and um, Epiphany Fellowship, the Thriving Conference, got a chance to uh, share what the Lord has given me, uh, engaging the conscious community and uh, talking about how we as Christians uh, apologetically. You know what I believe about apologetics? I don't believe apologetics is a professional field of ministry. Uh, apologetics, from a, if, if we're being true in our understanding to apologetics, uh, it is grassroots. It was always intended for everyday believers to engage the culture, uh, to take it into the marketplace, the educational institutions, or wherever you are, and to intelligently be able to give an answer to the reason of your faith with gentleness and with respect. I hear people sometimes define apologetics as being able to uh, articulate um, what you believe and why. But that's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is articulating what the Bible teaches, <laughs> not what you believe, because you could believe wrongly. <laughs> but what the Bible teaches and, and why is to give, uh, not only to present the gospel, but to be able to defend the faith uh, from all kinds of persons within and without who have questions about uh, what we believe. And, and I really appreciate, it's only one aspect of how we evangelize. Uh, it's only one aspect of being missiological. Uh, it's not the whole thing. It doesn't answer everything, uh, but it is one aspect of what we do. Uh, And it is very important for Christians to be able to understand uh, their faith. That is, what is is it that you should believe? Uh, And to be able to communicate that in ways uh, that are intelligent, that are cogent, that are um, clear. Uh, I think it was uh, Calvin that talked about uh, lucid brevity, 
you know, being able to summarize what you believe in very clear, uh, cogent ways. And, um, and I'm encouraged to be a part of this movement. I think, personally, I think this aspect of apologetics, urban apologetics, might be about 90 years uh, uh, behind schedule. Because if the church had provided an adequate apologetic uh, to many of these cults and these groups that have uh, arisen uh, in uh, an urban context, uh, perhaps we would not be seeing a mass exodus, we would not be seeing backdoor revival uh, in our churches. Uh, but they, they failed to do that, and um, at least a comprehensive apologetic. And so 90 years later, uh, here come a group of uh, men and women on fire for God who have uh, been inspired uh, by God and to be able to articulate their faith to their context, to make it relevant. It's apologetics, urban apologetics is just another aspect of um, cultural, contextual evangelism. It's making the gospel relevant to where you are. Uh, it doesn't change the meaning of the gospel, it just makes it relevant and it addresses the issues and the core concerns that are there. And so I am thankful to be part of what is happening um, around the country and even globally, the people who are being inspired by that. Uh, I am a, grateful again to be a partner of uh, Dr. Mason. Uh, why don't you give your pastor a great hand clap? And uh, thank God for his leadership, his ministry. And uh, our dear sister Mason, God bless you so much. Thank you for your service. And um, all of you saints and friends, we greet you in the wonderful name of Jesus. My good brother, Roshane, traveled with me from Atlanta. God bless you, dear brother, uh, for coming. And uh, let's get right into the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it our ancestors won God's approval. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith. Everybody say, by faith. By faith. There's, there's a refrain in this. Uh, Hebrews 11 is almost like a song. There's a constant refrain here and, and refrain and by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did by faith he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts and even though he is dead he still speaks through his faith by faith Enoch was taken away and so he did not experience death he was not to be found because God took him for before he was taken away he was approved as one who pleased God now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Say it again. By faith, by faith. Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Say it again. By faith, by faith. he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. Verse 11, by faith, by faith. 
Even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful, therefore from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring, as numerous as the stars of the sky, and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. Lord, bless the preaching of the word of the Lord today. Uh, God, help us to receive the word with gladness and with joy, with readiness of mind, and not just hear the word, but to be doers as well. We pray, Lord God, that you would make ready the soil of our hearts, that it would become good ground for the seed of the word to go in, and that it would produce fruit well-pleasing to you, and that we would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And let all of the saints of God say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I want to talk for a few minutes from this topic, authentic faith in a counterfeit culture. Authentic faith in a counterfeit culture. Uh, many of you may know this and some may not, but the Secret Service, their primary responsibility is not to protect the president. Although in more recent times, that's what they are known for. But the primary responsibility of the Secret Service as it was uh, instituted and initiated uh, roughly about 50 or 60 years ago was to stem the rising tide of counterfeit bills. Counterfeitism. That's the main focus of the Secret Service. How they do that is not by becoming an expert in counterfeit bills. They are able to counteract the growing tide of counterfeitism by becoming an expert in what is authentic. Because that which is authentic has earmarks that the counterfeit does not. And when you know the earmarks of what's authentic, you immediately notice that the counterfeit is missing those earmarks. So you don't have to be an expert in all of these different religious faiths and so forth and so on because those faiths don't contain the earmarks of the authentic gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hebrews chapter 11 is concerned with the believer's understanding of faith. There's a whole lot of teaching out there about what faith is. There's uh, faith in your faith. There is, there is faith uh, there is the God kind of faith. You've got to have the God kind of faith. The God kind of faith, according to uh, certain words, faith kind of teachers, is the kind of faith uh, that expresses itself by speaking words, and then your words have creative power. And then they'll say, if you've got God kind of faith, you can call those things that be not as though they were. Only Romans 4 and 17 says that God calls those things that be not. As though they are. And, and, and so then, when we speak the word of God, we have to understand that our words are not causative like God's words are. God's words cause things to be. Our words merely influence things. So when the Bible says that life and death is in the power of the tongue, it doesn't mean that it causes life and death. It means that it influences. So then, 
Obviously, the God kind of faith is not the biblical faith that the Bible is speaking of. Biblical faith is authentic because it does something. Biblical faith is not abstract. And in the Western world, we are very abstract thinkers, meaning that we utilize words quite often that require definition. If I say culture and you're not familiar with that, I've got to define culture for you. But when Jewish people talked about culture or used words, they spoke in ways that were concrete. These were three-dimensional, life-oriented words. And so how they would talk about culture is to say halak or to walk. Because culture for Jews is how you walk, which is more idiomatic of how you live. And since Yahweh, when he called the Israelites out into the wilderness and settled them after the exodus he said walk after me he said walk in my ways in other words i'm going to teach you how to live i'm going to give you a new culture that's not like the people and the nations around you and so the idea of walking is something that you can see it's something that you can touch it's something that you can notice as opposed to defining it in a very abstract way and so what the writer here of the book of Hebrews does is he not only defines faith for us as in verse 1 and 2, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the reality of things that are not seen. What the writer does is he gives us a mental, a concrete conceptualization of what faith actually looks like. And so he doesn't get very far in verse 4. He says, by faith. Everybody say, by faith. Right. Now, if faith looks like something and if faith does something, we can expect that faith is going to be followed by verb forms. And so the very first thing that we find in verse 4, the Bible says that by faith, uh, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. So Abel's faith looked like an offering. And the Bible says that it was not just an offering, but it was a better offering than his brother Cain's. Many years ago, I was originally taught that the reason that God did not accept Cain's offering is because he brought the wrong kind that Abel brought a bloody offering, if you will. He brought, well, I'm sorry, he brought a uh, uh, fruit from the ground and Cain brought uh, a lamb, if you will. And, and so when you understand, of course, the sacrificial system, you'll notice that there are bloody offerings and non-bloody offerings. There are grain offerings. There are fruit offerings. There are animal sacrifices. And so the issue here is not one of type or categorization. The issue here is concerned with quality. The Bible says that by faith, Abel offered a better offering than Cain. And so the reason that God accepted Abel's offering is not just because it was an offering, but it was the quality of offering that God found acceptable. In other words, you just can't throw anything up to God and he's supposed to take it. 
God said, not only have I prescribed that you worship, but I have also prescribed that you do it with all of your heart. For you worship me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. And so God said, you can wave your hands, you can know how to do the huckabuck and the shout, but if your heart is not fully given over to me, then it doesn't matter the type, I'm looking at the quality of your worship. For it is the quality of your worship that reveals the condition of your heart. You know, when you worship and you don't give God your very best, that is an indication of how you actually feel about him. Let me make the next point. Verse 5, and I get winded quickly. I'm out of shape, so if you hear me. (sighs) And I'm not even a big guy. I just get winded. I just need to exercise a little bit more. So verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away. So, so, so what's the verb here? Remember, as far as Abel was concerned, the verb is offered. But in verse 5, the verb is to be taken away or translated. The Bible says, so that he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him. Watch this. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, the the, the writer here is doing what scholars would call intertextuality. He's explaining something he's probably taking for granted that his readers already understand what, what Enoch actually did. Because all we see in the verse is that he walked with God, and then God took him. And so if, if, if uh, Enoch had faith, the question remains, well, what did Enoch do so that God would take him? What was his faith action? What did Enoch's faith look like? Well, that's actually explained in this verse. It said, for before He was taken away. He was approved or commended. In other words, he had the testimony as one who pleased God. When you go back to Genesis chapter 5, there's a greater indication of what Enoch actually did. Genesis chapter 5 is the lineage of Seth, and it begins with a cyclical refrain that this one was born and after so much time when he was 85 years old he gave birth to then after he gave birth to that person he lived for so many more years and the total number of his life was this and then he died and then it repeats and so and so lived and he gave birth to so-and-so at such and such an age, and then after he gave birth to him, he lived about 400 more years, and the total number of his life was such and such, and then he died. And that repeats itself about nine times in Genesis chapter five. But when God gets to Enoch, he goes away from the refrain, and it's not just Enoch lived, and gave birth to Methuselah. He doesn't describe Enoch as merely living. 
He goes away and says, Enoch walked with God. Right? So, 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 so we get more information here. He's not concerned. In fact, he doesn't even end with Enoch dying. He just describes the fact that Enoch walked with God. And as a result of walking with God, God took him. So the walking with God is in the verb form. It is not a noun in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a verb. He's not describing how he walked with God. He's describing that he walked with God. In other words, God was pleased with the intimacy of fellowship with Enoch. This, this, this is an echo back to Genesis chapter 2 when the Bible says that in the cool of the day that God walked with Adam. But when Adam sinned, Adam was to be found no and God came looking for Adam because he missed the intimacy of the fellowship. But Enoch walked with God. That's not walked before him. That's not walked after him. That is walked with him. There was a fellowship that Enoch and God had and his life was so described by this intimacy and this walk that the writer of Hebrews says that it pleased the Lord. Watch this. This word pleased is not an adjective. The word pleased in the Greek is a verb. It's the same word that we find in Romans chapter 12 when the Bible says to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That's the same word, but that word is actually in the adjectival form. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's in the verb form. In other words, walking with God is the action of pleasing God. God is saying, I am pleased when my people walk in fellowship with me. God is, so, God is so concerned about fellowship that he went looking for it when Adam was no longer in place. God's fellowship with Enoch was so wonderful that God said, I've got to have him all to myself and took him. And so when everybody else's life is merely described as having lived, having given children, and then dying after living a little bit longer, God breaks the song and does an entirely new verse with Enoch and said Enoch did not die what he didn't just live but Enoch when he lived during his life he walked with me this is what faith looks like believers is that we are not just born to live but we are born that we might walk with God we are born that we might fellowship with him we are born that we might worship him we are born that we might praise him we are born Born that we might celebrate his glory. We are born for his fellowship. And God says, I'm actually pleased with that. And so verse 7, by faith, remember, faith looks like something, right? So what did Noah do by faith? After he was warned about what he had not seen, verse 7, he was motivated by godly fear. And the Bible says he built an ark. But the Bible doesn't just say he built an ark. It tells us why. The text says so that his family might be delivered. <laughs> and, so, and so 
We talk about Noah all the time, and you know, he, Noah was building the ark for 100 years, 120 years, and all this stuff. But the writer of Hebrews is saying that Noah was not just building an ark. He was building an ark so that his family might be delivered. Now you're the one, you're the one now, now you're the one talking about you've got faith. You're the one talking about I'm a believer. You're the one spreading your confession of faith around. But my question to you is what is your faith building? And how is your faith leaving a legacy for your children, your family? Come on, somebody. How is your faith building something that is uh, profitable or beneficial for those that you are related to? Let, let, let me let me let me bring you here. Remember Lot? Remember Lot? Peter said Lot was a righteous man. That was God's thinking about Lot, that he was a righteous man. But the Bible also says that when Abraham gave Lot the choicest part of the land, that he continued to move in the direction of the better part of the land. He had no intention on making his address 666 Sodom Boulevard. <laughs> he didn't intend to end up there. But the Bible says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. In other words, every time he took his tent up and moved, he kept going further and further in that direction until one day he ends up there, living there. Now, Peter also says that Lot's soul was vexed because of what he saw and heard. But he didn't move from Sodom. He stayed there. And he stayed there so long that even though he was a man of God, his testimony had gotten so dulled that when he needed to talk to his sons-in-laws about deliverance, the text says that they looked at him as one that mocked. In other words, oh, you're trying to be saved now. Oh, you're trying to get holy. You're trying to be holy now. You're trying to be holier than thou. You're trying to be sanctified. And it's not that he wasn't sanctified, but because he hadn't lived that way when he needed to tell them about deliverance, they could not receive it from him because he had not built anything to save his family from. You see? All right. So. Let's look at Abraham by verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. That's what Abraham's faith did. Abraham's faith obeyed when he was called. In other words, Abraham didn't receive specific instruction. His instruction was leave. <laughs> now, I know... In our tribe, when you get a good job, you, so you can't explain that to the rest of the family. You working for the power company 15 years and you trying to tell me that you just up and left? That was a good job. <laughs> so, well, that's essentially what the text is telling us that God said, walk. And I'm sure Abraham, like me and you, is like, God, where? And God said, just keep walking. I'll tell you when to stop. So every now and again, he stopped, pitched his tent, 
and stay there for a little bit. God said, all right, keep walking. <laughs> Takes his tent up, walks again, sets it down, stays there for a little bit. God said, all right, take it up, keep walking. Yes, Where am I going? He said, I, I'm, keep walking. In other words, faith does not need specifics in order to be obedient. Faith walks by instruction, not by understanding. In fact, understanding follows faith. It is not a prerequisite for it. I don't believe, I don't understand. Your problem is a faith issue, not an intellectual issue. Come on. Right? So, so he obeyed, kept on walking, not having instructions. And you know what I love about the writer of Hebrews is, is that Sarah is a part of Abraham's story. And so the very next verse says, and even Sarah, because Abraham was not walking alone. He had a wife. Some folks, your spouse keeps you from walking with God the way you need to walk with God. And Jesus said, Jesus, sweet Jesus, Mary's baby, Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world, said, unless you hate your mother and your brothers, your sisters, your wife, your husbands, for my sake, the idiomatic expression in Hebrew doesn't literally mean to hate, it means to love less. In other words, unless you make me the chiefest priority of your love and your loyalty, you cannot be my disciple. So Abraham is walking with God, but he's not leaving his wife behind because his wife is walking with him as they walk with God together. Hang with me now. Hang with me now. It's going to get good. Verse 11. But in the course of their walking, she was unable to have children. And, 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 and in Oriental cultures, Eastern cultures, it was deemed a curse, if you will, to be barren. They felt like something was wrong with you. God was against you. And so being fruitful, having a fruitful womb, meant that somehow you were blessed by the gods, right? So, so you have to understand culturally how Sarah is feeling. But you also have to understand biologically that Sarah was 90 years old. Scrambled, fried, boiled, sunny side, don't matter. Those eggs were dead. Come on. Let's just be real. Eddie Murphy, let's just be real. Let's be real. Upper room. They weren't working. Now, I want to I want to I want to help you. Although Abraham was old, he had potency about him. And he was older than her. How do I know? Didn't wasn't Ishmael born before Isaac? To a, to to a fertile woman though, right? And when Abraham was 120, after Sarah died, Abraham had five more sons. So, so, so Abraham didn't need the blue pill or the red pill. 
He didn't have to go to the gross, the, 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 the gas station. <laughs> Let me get one of those right there, one of those. Nope, not Abraham. So when God came to visit Abraham, he said there were three visitors, two angels. One was God, Theophany and Angelophanes. They both looked like men, but they were not. Abraham recognized that one of them was God, bowed down and referred to him as Yahweh. The other two he did not bow down to. So Abraham understood that he had been visited by God. They spent roughly about six to seven hours there. I know that because he told his servant when they showed up, go kill a ram and prepare it. And if you know anything about their culture, you not only got to drain it, bleed it, but you got to prepare it, you got to cook it, and that's going to be a whole lot of time. And he said, make some cake too. So they were there for a while. During the course of their discourse, God said to Abraham, your wife this time next year is going to have a baby. Sarah was in the other room, heard that and was like, now, 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 don't come down on Sister Sarah too hard because her laugh is not a laugh of unbelief, but of disbelief. It, it, it's the kind of, is this even possible? I mean, Lord, don't you know I'm 90 years old? Most likely, uh, not only that, but even desire was out the window, right? So, 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 so obviously, if they're supposed to have children through the not, not, virgin birth, none of that stuff, through the natural order and course of things, one would expect it that in order for that to happen, Abraham and Sarah would have followed up by faith <laughs> with activity that is conducive to producing. <laughs> but they didn't. They didn't. And, 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 and some time had gone by. And so God said, I got you. Cause the famine to hit the land. Abraham and his honey go down to the land of the Philistines. And when they get there, King Abimelech looks at Sarah and is like, I got to have her. He's like, is she anybody to you? Abraham is like, well, you know, that's my sister <laughs> in the Lord. <laughs> he was afraid for his life. So... Abimelech snatches her up. Thank God. God comes through at night. Abimelech has a dream. God says, don't touch her. And Abimelech was like, I'm not going to touch her, Lord. And God said, I know, because I would have killed you if you did. That literally, no, I'm telling you. Read, read the text. That's what God, and God said, I prevented you from touching her. Made his whole house sick. So, you know, when people start talking about, uh, you know, uh, they can do whatever they want to do, they say, no, no, you don't understand the sovereignty of God. You do what God wants you to do. He tried to say, I wasn't going to touch you, and God said, I know, because I made sure you didn't. I was the one, in other words, that stopped that from going down. And so, Abimelech said, hey, man, you, you and your wife, y'all got to leave. You've caused trouble. Take whatever you need, but you got to, you don't have to go home but you got to get out of here. So Abraham grabs his wife. Watch this. The very same text tells us in that next chapter that Sarah conceived. Hold on. Wait, hold on a minute. She conceived after they left the land of the Philistines. 
So you know what God does? Because Sarah doesn't think that this is possible. And because Abraham has not made a move. God, see, listen, nothing will create jealousy in a man than when he knows that another man has been checking out his lady. And so after he found out that Sarah was sexy after all, because Abimelech was like, I got to have, mind you, she's 90. But Abimelech was like, I got to have her. And when Abraham thought about how his wife looked to Abimelech, they found a quality in. Motel 6, Motel 12, Marriott, but they had that child. It conceived because watch now, God created the circumstances to manipulate because they weren't moving fast enough. Hang on now. I got to wrap up. See, when you, don't, when, you don't, when you don't do what God wants you to do, he'll get you to do it. Acts 1 and 8. Acts 1 and 8. And you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But for 15 years, the church stayed in Jerusalem until God stirred up persecution. And all of a sudden, the saints are going everywhere bringing the gospel because by faith, God created the circumstances for obedience. All right. All right. I'm going to close on this one. Verse 23. Everybody say, by faith, Moses, when he was born, watch this. It says he was hidden by his parents for three months. You know the story? The, the Pharaoh sent out the edict, all male boys are to be killed on sight. That's where that comes from. When I see you. It's on sight. That's where it comes from. Everything is biblical, I'm trying to tell you. Nothing new under the sun. Pharaoh said, on sight, every baby boy, kill him. Only the midwives feared God more than the Pharaoh. And so God has it. As, see, there's not coincidence, there's only consequence. As God would have it. When Moses is born, they put him in a basket and float him up the Nile, right? And he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. Just so happened to be that one of Pharaoh's daughter's servants, that she took the baby and said, okay, you know, I've got administrative responsibilities, so I can't personally care for the child, but I will provide care would you take the baby and nurse the baby for me? By consequence of God, the servant of Pharaoh's daughter was Moses' own mother. See how God sets stuff up? So Moses ends up getting raised in Pharaoh's house by his own mom. And they kept it a secret, right? Now, 
Let's go back to how Moses survived. The text says they put him in a box, a basket. Moses now is, if we accept that he is the author of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of scripture, Moses would have been the one recounting this narrative himself. And so Moses describes the basket that they put him in, in the Hebrew as being a teva. Everybody say teva, right? And, and, and so consequently, when Moses wrote about the story, the narrative of Noah, he describes Noah's boat as a teva. Now, there were other words that he could have used. The one that would have been most acceptable to use would have been ornia because that means boat or ship. And Moses should have used Oinia, but instead he calls Noah's ark the same thing that he calls his basket. And so there's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to call his basket a Teva and Noah's ark a Teva as well. Because the difference between a Teva and an Oinia is that both of them could float, but an ornia was steered by oars. In other words, the direction that it went was determined by people rowing and making it go here or there. But Ativa had no oars. In other words, it was God's sovereignty that was guiding the boat. Not man's will, but God's sovereignty. That's why John said in chapter 3 that Jesus said the wind blows wherever it wants to. And you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it goes and where it cometh. So is everyone born of the Spirit. John chapter 1, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Ativa could only be steered by God. Otherwise, it was left floating by chance. But God was the navigator of the ark and the basket. So it didn't matter whether there were a million crocodiles in the Nile. As long as God was the captain of that ship, not one crocodile in creation would have touched Moses because it was not by chance or happenstance. Moses didn't survive the Nile. He was preserved, guided by the intelligence of God. In other words, his course was already determined by God by faith so when you talk about you have faith it has to look like something it is not just a confessional statement the greek word pisteo means faith but it just doesn't mean a mental ascent to faith pisteo the normal form of faith in the new testament is a verb so it means an action but the Greek was written by Hebrews. And so when you're reading Greek, the meaning is not always lexical because the Hebrews communicated their cultural conception through Greek language. Let me help you with this. Greek is, I, how, how can I put it? The Greek New Testament 
is like Hebrew and Greek dress. Right? So, so watch this. When the New Testament uses the word pistel, the Hebrew uses the Hebrew word emunah. Remember, it's not abstract, it's concrete. So remember when Moses and the Israelites were fighting the Midianites and he would, old man Moses would raise his arms and they would win. But then when his arms grew tired, they would lose. After so many of those kinds of, dis, you know, those kinds of uh, dynamics going on, Aaron and Hur decided, hey, you get on this side, I'll get on that side. We'll just hold old man Moses' arms up since he can't do it on his own. And as long as his arms were up, they won. Only did you know that the Hebrew word for hold up in the text is the word emunah, which is how the Old Testament translates the word faith. Because that is what faith is. It is something that holds up another thing. So when you say you have faith, God's looking for the structural and the supporting evidence that proves that you have it. In other words, what are you holding up? What are you supporting through your actions that demonstrate that you actually have what you say you have? So faith looks like something. When Jesus saw the men bringing their friend who was paralyzed, they couldn't get in the door, it was packed out. They went upstairs, no way in. They made an entrance, a hole in the ceiling and dropped him down. And Jesus, the text says, when he saw their faith. What we've got to do, and stand with me because I'm done. We've got to move beyond confessional faith. I'm glad that you believe right. But that kind of believing, orthodoxy, has to translate into right practice, which is known as orthopraxy. In other words, the right actions follow the right believing. And what God is looking for is a people who have authentic faith in the midst of a culture that's counterfeit. And the difference is in what we do. It's in how we live. James, James said, show me your faith by your works. Because faith without works is dead. But I'm going to leave an opportunity today for those of you who desire special prayer because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Let me say this, and I, I, I want to be very clear about it. Believing right is not all that there is to it. There's a faith that is informed by believing right, that informs what we do, right? How we think. It's not enough to just say, I've got all the correct doctrines. 
Because there were a lot of people. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, the Pharisees, they sit in the seat of Moses. They've got smicker. In other words, they've got ordination. He says, do what they tell you to do. Jesus actually said this. So listen to them. He said, but don't do what they do. So a lot of their actions are hypocritical. Their teaching is right, but their actions were hypocritical. So God's looking for people who will marry faith believing with faith actions. Our faith doesn't determine what God does. Our faith is not for, our faith is in. But just because I can't determine what God does doesn't mean that I should not still trust him. Because you believe right doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask God for a miracle. Because you believe right doesn't mean you shouldn't ask God for healing. Because you believe God doesn't mean that you should not trust him. But biblical faith doesn't determine the outcome. But it is settled in the fact that whatever God does, I'm still going to trust him. Throw me in the fire and I'm still not going to bow down. Because my faith is not predicated in the outcome. It is anchored in who God is. God is faithful. And he's worthy. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you. And it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give, and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.